up, everybody? Happy New Year to you, and welcome to episode one of a brand new season of the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm glad you're going to be joining me today. This year, we're going to be working our way through the track sessions from last year's National Disciple Making Forum. Today's episode features Matt Markins, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Awana. I found this episode to be really inspiring from the Elton John lyrics to practical tips for serving the children in our churches, all the way to Matt's personal testimony of how he was moved to follow Jesus at an early age himself. He goes into his personal story at the end after the break, so make sure you stick around for that. Hey, I'm excited about this new year and about this new season, and I hope that you are too. These episodes are going to bless you, and they're really going to help you along your journey of becoming a disciple maker and becoming a better disciple as you follow Jesus in your own life. All right, let's jump into this episode. This is Matt Markins from Awana. Well, my name is Matt Markins, and uh, I'm going to share a little bit of my personal story later on. Uh, in this talk, but if I was you, I would want to know, like, hey, who is this guy? Why is he here? Of all the people they could put in this room, uh, I don't know the answer to that question either, but at least I can attempt to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in the cornfields of central Indiana, came to Nashville to go to a small Bible college, uh, graduated with Nashville being somewhat of a publishing town. I found myself in the Christian publishing space. Somehow I landed in the children's ministry lane. And uh, in 2009, I founded something called the D6 Conference. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but D6 is about connecting church and home. How do we equip parents to partner with the church uh, to disciple uh, our children, our young people? And that's how I discovered the Awana organization. And as of January 1st of this coming year, uh, I'll be the president and CEO of the Awana organization. So we've been around for 70, soon to be 72 years. Um, I'll be the fifth uh, essentially executive director or CEO of the organization. And when I talk a little bit later, uh, I'll share a little bit more about my personal faith story. Uh, but at least that gives you a bit of a snapshot uh, who I am, the organization I serve uh, with. Awana's been, like I said, been around 70, almost 72 years. Um, we're, we are in 130 countries around the globe. Um, if you've heard of organizations like Compassion, World Vision, Southern Baptist, Christian Missionary Alliance, we partner with many of them uh, in a lot of time, like with Compassion, in their holism model, socio-emotional, educational, health, spiritual. Uh, we are the spiritual arm of a lot of these uh, ministries uh, in terms of how do we disciple them. So what we do as an organization is we equip leaders to reach kids with the gospel and to engage them in ongoing discipleship. Some of you may know us historically as being uh, our kind of the big muscle of Awana was scripture memory with children. That's still true today, uh, but we've done a lot of work on scripture memory is a key attribute of child discipleship. It's not the whole. And so what we're going to talk about here is kind of how we arrived at what, what is fruitful child discipleship in today's culture. So here's a quick picture of my family. Uh, we are a very imperfect family. Um, I'm just going to be super vulnerable. We hit our first, first rough spot. I've got two teenagers, and as of two months ago, it was like, this is easy. Like, being a parent is amazing. It's so easy. We've not hit any rough spots. Well, my youngest child, who's on the far left, uh, his, uh, ha he's having some emotional challenges. And I'm just saying to you as a parent, life is hard. Life is really, really hard. You think you're doing well, and all of a sudden, you know, 
Uh, so we, he's just hitting a, he's hit a rough spot emotionally. We moved from Chicago back to Nashville the past year and a half, and he's just really hitting uh, some challenges. My, the other uh, young man is my oldest son, who's a sophomore in Bible college. He has his first girlfriend. His feet haven't hit the ground in weeks. Um, and then uh, my wife, Katie, she and I met in this town in Nashville. Uh, uh, she moved from Conroe, Texas. I moved from north of Indianapolis, Indiana, and we met in this city right here. So uh, we, she and I have been married 23 years. We've given our life to really studying child disciple making. Um, so what I love about events like this one is it's the generations coming together. So, um, and by the way, Sarah, that's my partner in crime, Sarah. She's gonna be running the slides. I'm like dependent on the clicker and I don't have a clicker. So you, Sarah is my clicker today. So, so what I love about gatherings like this is it's the generations coming together. So let's start with the boomer. Who are my boomers here? Are you bolder? Okay, here we are. We got a few boomers, all right. Another thing I love about these kind of gatherings is, is being able to worship. Did you guys enjoy the praise and worship? And for those of us who are deeply involved in local church ministry, we don't often get to just put everything down and enjoy worship. So conferences are often a great chance to just worship and enjoy the music. So, but when I think about generations, oftentimes the pop culture music becomes the soundtrack of our generation. So boomers, talk to me. Who were the artists of your day when you were growing up? The major pop, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. Amy Grant. Yeah. How about what were you gonna say? Aerosmith. Yep. I was thinking, I was thinking the Rolling Stone. I did some research. Rolling Stone, the Beatles. Someone said the Beatles. Yep. 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 Uh, Leonard Skinner, Pink Floyd, uh, the Beach Boys. So okay. So now I'm an Xer. Uh, Xers are those of us born between '65. In 1980. By the way, one of the ways you also know you're becoming an exer is you have to start doing this with your glasses because <laughs> you haven't yet got the transitional lenses. So that's my next big step as an aging man in his 40s. So we're going to skip the exers. By the way, the exers always get skipped. So we're going to skip the exers. Everyone always forgets us. But we'll come back to the exers. So who are my uh, younger siblings, the millennials in the room? Raise your hand. All right, all right. So you guys talk to me. Who are the who are the major pop cultural artists of your day? Britney Spears, Instinct, Backstreet Boys, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. Yeah, we're in Nashville. So how about like Taylor Swift? You know, she was in the mix. So and don't forget Nickelback. You guys brought us Nickelback. Thank you very much for that. Okay, and Gen Z. Do we have any Gen Z in the room? Can we give it up for Gen Z? Gen Z is here. Gen Z is, the, the oldest Gen Zers are 24, and they're to the point where we're starting to pass the local church leadership baton to Gen Zers. But I'm, I'm an Xer, and Xer, those are those of us born uh, between 65 and 80. Uh, and, and in our day, kind of some of the big artists uh, were U2, Journey, Queen, and Foreigner. But there's one particular artist I want to focus on just for a few minutes to kind of help uh, create a metaphor here. This particular artist I want to talk about was the leading pop artist of the 1970s. Any, any guesses? I'm guessing Jackson. It, it was not Michael Jackson. That's a good guess. A couple more guesses. Okay. It was Elton John. Elton John was the leading... Uh, you guys got this. Come on. <laughs> 
He was the leading artist of the 1970s. Matter of fact, he's one of the leading selling artists of all time. I think it's 300 million albums. Uh, not too shabby. So Elton John, is he kind of is the soundtrack to all of our lives. Even if you're, no matter your generation, I could probably play his top 10 songs and you would recognize at least eight out of 10 of them, I, I'm, I'm assuming. So this past year, I, I was volunteering in youth group. I've got my two sons, like I said, in youth group. And as soon as Wednesday night was over, um, they didn't want their dad around. So they did that traditional post-youth group cultural norm and went to Taco Bell. And they didn't want me around. So I, I hop in the truck and I'm, I'm like craving some Elton John. Do you ever get like musical cravings, you know? So I pull up the Greatest Hits playlist, press play, put the truck in drive and start driving down the road. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where God just like, like does something that just blows your mind when he gives you a thought or a lyric, or you read something. So I'm driving down the road, I'm listening to Rocket Man, and at one minute and 50 seconds into the song, he says this line, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. And in that moment, I'm driving in north of Nashville in Sumner County, I happen to be at a spot halfway between Nashville and my hometown, where it's like dark, like all I can see is the stars. And I hear that line and I'm like, because I'm thinking to myself, it feels a lot like we are raising kids on Mars, especially probably if you're a millennial or older, you remember a time when the world seemed a lot less complex, right? And so I heard that line and I, I go home and I was curious, like I, I, I had seen his movie Rocket Man, so I knew just enough to know, like he had a writing partner named Bernie who wrote all of the vast majority of his lyrics. And so I went home and I looked up like, like why was that song written? And so here's what Bernie said. Rocket Man was actually inspired by a story by Ray Bradbury from his book of science fiction short stories called The Illustrated Man. Some of you probably read Ray Bradbury. In that book, there was a story called The Rocket Man, which was about how astronauts in the future would become sort of some sort of everyday job. So I kind of just took that idea and I ran with it. So what's interesting is if you look at the next so there's that line, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids, but the next three lines unpack something that is absolutely phenomenal. And to think that this was written in 71, published in 72, and I believe it's more relevant now than it ever has been. So let's break down these next three lines. In fact, it's as cold as hell. I, sh I should just put the E in there. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be so sensitive. <laughs> in fact, it's cold as hell, and there's no one there to raise them if you did. And all the science, I don't understand. It's just my job five days a week. So we're gonna break these down one by one. First one right here. In fact, it's as cold as hell. What is that? What does that mean? That's loneliness and isolation. You know, if, if you were to say something, dude, that guy, he is as cold as hell. Like, like you, he's just icing me out. He is, he is uh, leaving me uh, to myself. The next one, and there's no one there to raise them if you did. If you hear in a headline, if someone describes that in a news headline, what would we call that? We would call that child abandonment, or we would say someone is neglecting their children when we leave them to fend for themselves. This third part, all the science, I don't understand. It's just my job five days a week. How many of you during the pandemic or the height of the pandemic watched that documentary called The Social Dilemma? Yeah. Did you guys see that? Yeah. What were they saying? They were saying, not only did we create these devices, but we created apps we gave them to humanity and we had no clue what the psychological, spiritual, and cognitive outcomes were going to be on the lives of humans. 
and we've given them to children. How many of you have been walking through a store and you see the 18 months sitting back in the stroller just kind of doing this, just like swiping through the phone, 18 months old, you know? Like we've given these things to our kids. So if we look at all three of these together as a group, loneliness and isolation, neglect and abandonment, we're in over our heads with technology this is where we are today, and this is Mars. And Mars is not the kind of place to raise our kids. This is where we're at. Let's, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we're, kind of gonna, we're gonna kind of pursue a couple of key questions today. God, we thank you so much just for the chance to be together. It is so good to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's good to have your word in our language. It's good to just be your child. So we're all coming here from across the country, from Middle Tennessee, from other places. And here we are together. You brought us here for a purpose. And we just say, God, please speak to us. Please show us why you brought us here. And I, I've been captivated by this verse that I put down here, uh, Philippians 2.15, which says that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And we think of a verse like that. We think of this world that we're living in that's like Mars. God, we want these children in this warped and crooked generation to shine like stars in the sky, to know you, to be yours, and to live in your ways. That's our prayer. That's why we're here today. Lord, we want to hear from you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to answer, we're going to seek to answer two questions. The second one, or the first one kind of has two questions within the question uh, while we're here together. So the first question, what is the dominant culture of today and how is it forming our kids? So the first question we're going to camp out on is what is the dominant culture of today and how is it forming our kids? The second question we're going to discuss is what are the primary factors that form a child discipleship. So let's get into this first question. Uh, and we're going to take a look at a chart by Ed Stetzer. Uh, many of you probably are familiar with Ed. He's a well-known researcher, church planner, and missiologist. He's now, he was with Lifeway. He's now at Wheaton College at the Billy Graham Center. And when we look at this chart, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, everybody give me four fingers. Tuck your thumb behind your hand and give me four fingers. So let's start from the far left in the past. Put your top finger up and your bottom three down. This was the past. In the past, you had cultural Christians, congregational Christians, and convictional Christians, and we kind of all stuck together, meaning from Christian thinking, we had a common set of theistic assumptions. There was a God, right? God created the world, human sin. Jesus was this, at a minimum, this legendary figure. At a maximum, he was your personal savior, right? Like, and so church had a prominent place in the culture, right? This didn't mean the world is perfect. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. The world is still really jacked. The world's always been jacked up since Genesis chapter 3. So, but historically, we kind of stuck together with our major, many of our major, not all, many of our major theistic and Christian assumptions. But right now, here in the present, and then going into the, so here, watch this. I've worked so hard on this. You guys got to appreciate this. Whoop, see that? All right, look what I did there. So what's happening is, What's happening is we're experiencing like this cultural, like this gap, like a cultural divide. Like, like what once was mainstream, the theism was assumed. Theism is no longer assumed, right? 
Christianity no longer has a seat at the Thanksgiving cultural table, right? So there's a cultural divide, and people who call themselves Christians, so let's break this down. A cultural Christian is someone who says, don't do that. You're going you're to cause us all to yawn. A cultural Christian is someone uh, who says, hey, I was born in America. My great-grandfather was a pastor. I call myself a Christian, right? Um, a congregational Christian is someone who's affiliated with the church. They're very likely a member. They attend at least two or three times a year. They're, they're affiliated with the congregation. They call themselves a Christian. And then convictional Christians, these are people like us. Like the Apostles' Creed is uniting us together. We believe in the authority of Scripture. Jesus is our Savior, and we're trying to surrender our lives to him daily, right? So, again, historically we stuck together, but what's happening now is people who call themselves Christian, congregational, or cultural, they're actually identifying with secular thinking and not Christianity, right? So that's what's happening here. So there's a, there, a couple things to notice here is the dominant culture of the past and the projected dominant culture of the future. So historically, Christianity was really broadly accepted at the mainstream table. Like Billy Graham was like the ideal human being. Jesus was revered. The Bible was talked about. But that is no longer the case now. And for our, for our purpose this afternoon, you know, what about the future? What can we expect the culture of the future to be? So what Ed Stetzer and others are trying to say is that the dominant culture of the future will be secularism. This is not a shock. By the way, I don't, it's not like I think you guys are going, oh, what a shocker. It's not a shocker, but we need to, we need to go through and walk through some things to, to fully define what this means for us. So Tim Keller was in, a, in an interview recently where the interviewer said, secularism is the water we now swim in. Secularism is the broader water that all of us are swimming in. A good friend of Awana's and CEO of, Gay, uh, of Q Ideas, his name is uh, Gabe Lyons, uh, he defines uh, secularism as this. Secularism is the dismissal of God and the emphasis on individualism. Do you see this happening? Yeah, secularism is dismissing God, kind of de-elevating God and elevating the individual. Okay, let's define a second term, post-Christian culture. We hear this a lot. What does this mean? Post-Christian culture is an attempt to advance the goals of Christianity but without Christ. It's the kingdom without the king. This, was a, this is a quote from Pastor Mark Sayer. So let's think about this. What are the rally cries of today? What are, the, why are, what are people crying out in the streets protesting? They're protesting for justice, for freedom, love, redemption, all of these are the cries of our day. And by the way, where do those come from? Those ideas come from God. God is a God of justice. He is a God of freedom. He is a God of love. He is a God of joy and happiness. So a post-Christian culture is actually a reaction against Christianity. So think about the world pre-Christ, pre-Christian culture, barbarianism, tribalism, um, uh, animism, you know, they're, they're, the God is in the rocks, like those kinds of things. Like that's a pre-Christian world. Then Christ enters the scene. All of a sudden, this barbaric world begins to become a little more refined. We have, all of a sudden now we're like, we value, we, we want people to, to have health care. We want people to have, uh, we, women and children should be protected. Where do these ideas come from? Well, study history, a good historian knows that the world was not like that pre-Christ. 
So then there's the Christian era with any given culture, and then there's a post-Christian era where it's like, hey, we want the benefits of this worldview, but we don't want any of the Jesus stuff. We don't want the Bible. We don't want the church, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. That's what a post-Christian world is. So think about a bouquet of flowers. Where those flowers come from? They came from some kind of plant that they were rooted in. So think of a post-Christian culture as like a cut flower society. We've cut the flowers off. They're now in a bouquet. Look at how beautiful this is. How long can we sustain this? We can't sustain, you can put it in water for a while. Uh, by the way, husbands, buy your wives some flowers. Okay, so, uh, so a post-Christian culture is a lot like that bouquet of flowers. So why is it important to articulate this? It's important to articulate this for a couple of reasons. The first one is we gotta understand. So many of us, especially the older we are, we get up every day and we almost forget. We think we're still here. We're not, the shift has taken place. In a recent podcast I was listening to, Pastor John Tyson from New York City said, secularism is here and it is here to stay. It's not, we're not going back. We are living in a secularized culture. So the shift has already taken place. So we need to fully absorb that as we think about children's ministry. And the second thing is we just got to understand that secularism is the dominant culture. We've seen, I'm not going to go political, but we've seen the push in recent years. We're like fighting to get Christianity to be mainstream culture again. And as we look at the Gospels and read the New Testament, we've got to ask ourselves, is that really the goal to, get, to regain power or is the goal for the church to be the church no matter what's happening in the world around it, as we look historically in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So our, our kind of our next question within the question is exactly what factors within secularism are forming our children. It's not a matter of is secularism forming our kids, it's a matter of how is it forming our kids. You could say that every child is be dis being discipled, it's by what or by whom are they being discipled. So we're going to, there's three, there's three basic needs that every human being has, right? Three basic needs. The first one is community. The second one is meaning. And the third one is freedom. Community, meaning, freedom. So these are humans' three needs. So, so let's break it down. The first one is what? Community, community is what? You talk to me. What is community? What's the real need there? Belonging. Connection, belonging. You could say relationships. Yep. So this is one of our major needs. The second one is meaning. This is like, you know, this idea, you've heard of the word epistemology. Like this, it's like gaining knowledge that informs us to give us wisdom, to help us interpret reality. Like, like every one of us wants to, you know, when we feel like we're valueless and meaningless, you know, that's, that doesn't resonate well with the human soul. Humans crave meaning. Uh, and this third need that every human being has is freedom. This is kind of this idea of agency. Like if you have community and belonging, and if you understand meaning, we typically want to do something, right? Like we want to work the land or work the community or make an impact in this world. So these are keeping keeping in mind that these are humans three basic needs we call those same three things one of you even said one of them belong believe become and what happens in human development and human formation is these three human need areas of human need these three variables work together to shape one's identity 
So again, you, you could ask yourself about, as you think about children, the kids in your church, who are today's kids belonging to? That's community. What are they believing? That's meaning. And who are they becoming? The ability to live out their freedom and to live out that meaning. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So if secularism is the dominant culture, exactly how is the dominant culture forming our kids within these three areas? Let's take a look at this. All right, this is, this is what's happening as the dominant, remember, we were here, we're now here. This dominant culture, there's no hiding, there is no bubble. Like in the 1990s, we thought if we could just homeschool our kids and build a bubble, we're going to protect them and everything's going to be amazing, right? And we now know that that's, as much as we try, by the way, you should protect your kids. So like, I'm going to hold my, my three-year-old's hand while I'm crossing the street. Of course, you're going to protect your kids. But at some point, there's a progression from protection to preparation, because you're sending them out into the world. I like all your amens. I'm loving this over here. We need more of that. I'm just kidding. Actually, no, I'm not. Keep the amens coming. So, uh, so here's what's happening. Belong, belong is the affection for the ways of this world. So think about this. Theism, or Judeo-Christian, says there's a designer and a creator. Secularism dismisses God, right, which says there's no creator, you came about as a result of Darwinian evolution, which means there is no purpose or meaning. You have to create your own meaning. Therefore, belonging is about belonging where? Right here. You belong here on this earth. There is no afterlife. There is no spiritual realm. Everything is matter, physical matter. You belong here. So what do we know, what do we know about idolatry? Idolatry is like taking... Like taking like the, the conduit and redirecting it in another place. So we know that our belonging is with God and to his kingdom, but the secular world is, re, is sort of like diverting that, saying, no, 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 you belong here. Make it, make it all about right here, right now. The second one is believe. Believe is worldview rooted in your own morality and the constant changing thinking of the times. Worldview rooted in your own morality and the constant changing thinking of the times. This isn't new, right? Like, like Josh McDowell's been talking about this since 1776. This is, this is nothing new, but it's this idea of if there is no creator, and if I belong here, and there is no ultimate meaning, well, guess what? I'm going to create my own meaning, right? I'm going to, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my own worldview or I'm going to learn from others to be a part of their worldview about being here and life is all about here. And this third piece, becoming, what's happening, again, with the secular worldview shaping, become is allegiance to your best self and personal happiness. All about my best self. And my, so remember, this is about freedom. So what am I going to be allegiant to? If this is all there is, who am I going to be allegiant to? Me. I'm going to be allegiant to myself. Uh, the world says that the problem's out there. The gospel says the problem is actually in here. But what's happening is this worldview says, no, 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 the answer's found inside of you. So these three variables are working together to shape identity. What is the identity? The identity is personal autonomy. Personal, you could even call it hyper-individualization. So personal autonomy within and of itself isn't bad. Every, every human being, remember, one of our three basic needs is freedom. So personal autonomy is this idea that we can make choices and we're free to do so. But this culture is an obsession, remember? The dismissal of God, the elevation of self or personal autonomy or hyper-individualization. So here's, here's what I want us to see. This is the lens, the 10-year-old in your children's ministry, this is the lens they're looking through to even interpret what you're saying because this is the world that they're growing up in. So you might be thinking, no, 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 remember, we can build the bubble. These are our church kids. You can't build the bubble. This is, this is the world. This is the water that they're swimming in. These are the, the personality of this worldview. You've you probably all heard these. Mm -hmm. Love is love, my body, my choice, you be you, live your truth. Like these are the mantras of our day. This is the fruit of the tree of this hyper-individualized tree. This is the fruit. Kind of like that bouquet, the fruit's only gonna last so long before it goes rotten, you know? We've all tried this in our relationships eventually you end up being the jerk, you know, like this does not sustain. So let me, let me go on to the, the next slide, which is kind of the last factor here. A person's worldview is primarily shaped, according to the Barna group, by the time someone reaches a 13. So think about everything we just said. These three factors working together to shape personal autonomy, hyper-individualization. It's all happening by the age 13. Well, here's the thing. Today's 13-year-old is in your middle school ministry. Two years prior to that, they were 11, and they were wrapping up your children's ministry. Two years prior to that, they were nine, seven, five. So the question that we're asking is, as we think about the student dropout rate of the church, is this a youth ministry problem, or is this a child formation problem? If worldview is largely set by ages 13 or 14, what is forming them leading up to that? Well, we know what's forming them. Everything we've just talked about is what's forming them. So we've got, we've got to have harder conversations around what does the church do that forms them? What does the church and the family do together that's, that's forming them? Mars is not the kind of place to raise our kids, but it's exactly where we are today. So we're going to shift and talk about question number two. What are the primary factors that form a child? discipleship or disciple so as we kick off question number two remember how we talked about in 1971 72 is when bernie wrote that song and it published so just before 71 when that was written this idea of mars and space what happened two years prior to that in 1969 
Say again? We walked on the moon. That's right. So let's, let's talk about that. NASA, the organization that made all that possible, NASA was founded in 1958, and like many organizations in their early days, it was struggling to find its way. I guess you could say NASA in 1958 and just after that was floundering. Uh, they had a budget in, in that time period of $80 billion. Think about that. How many of you would like maybe 10% of that? How about even 1% of that? 1%. 1%. Yeah, I'm with you. There we go. So the Soviet Union, right, they were just like kicking our tails, like in the terms of the competition between the United States and other countries with, with the space race, right? So in the 1960s, the space race was on, and the eyes of the American public were like laser-locked on NASA, and there was great imagination and anticipation for what was to come. But here, NASA, NASA had some objectives and goals. Uh, and we're going to take a look at just two of them real fast. I'm going to read the second one. The preservation of the role of the United States as the leader in aeronautical and space science and technology and in the application thereof to the conduct of peaceful activities within and outside the atmosphere. I have no idea what I just read. <laughs> Here's the thing. This is two of NASA's goals. They had eight just like this. What's NASA's problem? What's that? They don't know what they want to do. They don't know what they want to do. So yeah, they're too broad, right? Like they've got eight goals like this. Are you going to accomplish any one of these goals? Even $80 billion is a lot of money, but when you spread that out over eight massive initiatives that are very far, they're very difficult to even like develop metrics and goals for, right? So very, very challenging. Um, what changed, though, is in 1961, you could probably remember this famous speech by President John F. Kennedy. He made a pronouncement to NASA where he said, land a man on the moon, return him safely to Earth before the time this decade is out. So with this clear objective, with this clear objective, NASA went from a strategy of diversified energies to like a singular focus. They went from broad to narrow. Get a man on the moon, land him on the moon, Get him home safely and do this before the end of 1969. Like that was the goal, right? So, but in order for this to happen, there were three problems that had to be solved. Propulsion, navigation, and human life support. So what happened was the entire organization rallied around these three. Imagine being in an organization like, okay, remember these eight things that we can't accomplish? We're going to do three things. Everyone choose the team you want to work on. Like, wouldn't that be so exciting? Like that's basically what happened. The organization rallied around these, problems were solved, objectives were clarified, systems were put in place, new technologies were developed, and bam, on July 20, 1969, the nation watched as Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon's surface and said, that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. To those of us who are familiar with that, like those words for American, like those are, that's like poetry. Those words are like, we hear that audio clip and you're like, that was awesome. That was what we achieved together as a nation. So what seemed so, so unattainable, what seemed so far off and distant, it happened, but it happened because we had a vision and then a goal and we were able to break it down into problems that could be solved. When I hear this NASA uh, illustration and as I think about uh, how we've defined the shift from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture and the primary factors within the dominant culture that are shaping kids, um, I think we need to ask a question as we think about how do we solve our problems. 
And the question is this, what if we shifted our thinking from children's ministry to child discipleship? Just like NASA was trying to do something broad, children's ministry can be broad. Children's ministry can mean child care, babysitting. It can mean entertainment. It can mean games. It can mean Bible teaching. I mean, we, we could probably list all of the things that children's ministry can mean, or it ends up meaning. But what we are doing, is it going to prepare today's kids to have lasting faith? So as we think about the year 2050 today in children's ministry, it, it kind of seems as distant as the moon. Like the moon, the thought of landing on the moon at that point probably seemed like, wow, that is like so far away. How could we ever accomplish that? But as we think about the year 2050, that's really what we're doing in children's ministry is repairing today's kids to thrive in their faith, to engage the culture and lead the church of 2050. And I, I think we have a similar problem as NASA in children's ministry. I think, I, think it's, I think we're too broad in our focus. If you work in children's ministry or you're quasi involved in children's ministry, you understand exactly what this means. You're not juggling three or four balls, you're juggling six, seven, eight, 12 balls. How well do we do with that? And by the way, these are methodologies. Most of these are methodologies. Any methodology, you could take, we could, we could throw a dart and hit one of these methodologies and say, we're gonna focus on this, but if we do it in the right way, I, I think we could do a pretty good job. So it's not the methodology that's the problem, it's what's behind it. What are the, un, what's the underpinning of the methodology? So the organization I work for, Awana, um, I joined Awana as a ministry in 2013, we moved our family to the Great White North in Chicago. We became cranky people for seven years. No, it wasn't that bad. But we, we moved to Chicago for seven years. We're now back here in God's country. But when I moved my family uh, to Chicago in 2013, I was really tasked by the leadership at that time to answer the question, what is it the local church does that brings about lasting discipleship fruit in the lives of kids? Like that's, that's pretty much what we've spent the, since 2013. That's what Awana is, the question we've been answering. And we've now conducted six research projects. Up to the time we, point, we published the book Resilient, we had conducted four research projects. Um, if you don't have a copy of this, I don't, I don't get any proceeds from this. I think it's 15, 16 bucks, something like that. You can hop on Amazon. What is it? $10. Oh, it's $10 at our booth? At our booth. Look at that. So, go see Sarah. Uh, but here's three copies for anyone who wants to fight over it. Uh, but we, we published our, our research in chapters eight and 10 uh, here in the, in the book. Uh, and we found, uh, as, as we were having, here's, let me back up a second. We not only did, conducted our own research projects, we also collected research from other people like Christian Smith, Lifeway, the Barna Group, uh, Sicky Faith, et cetera. The second thing we did was we lo just looked at the gospels. We started asking like, hey, what is it Jesus is doing in the, in the gospel? Like, what is he doing to disciple people? The third thing we did is we, Awana gets, as you can imagine, letters and emails and stories all the time. And we just sifted through those. As we, looked, as we went through all three of those buckets, we, we came to three primary factors that shape um, child disciple-making long-term. And those are belong, believe, become, surprise. But now we're going to define each one of these from a biblical discipleship uh, perspective. Uh, the first one is belong. Belong is highly relational ministry led by loving, caring adults. We could go around this room and I could say, tell me who it was. Tell me the name. Who, who was that person 
who just made a big impact on your life with the gospel or in your relationship with Christ or disciple. Every one of you, without hesitating, could probably rattle off that name. Very few of us have like a Gideon Bible alone in a hotel room salvation experience, right? Like that, those do happen. Praise God they happen. Maybe they happen increasingly. But most of us had someone, whether pre-salvation, salvation, or in our discipleship journey, who have just been an amazing impact. So the Harvard Study for the Developing Child, uh, Harvard Center for the Developing Child did a study on resiliency in children. Kids fall down. One group, kids fall down, they don't get back up. The other group, kids fall down, I mean, metaphorically, they stumble and they get back up. Like, what's the difference? Why do some kids fight their way through trauma and other kids don't? And the commonality for those who, the kids who were able to thrive post-trauma is that they had one loving, caring adult in their life who they had access to on a consistent basis to help them navigate their challenges. The United Nations did a study where they said, Guys, we're not gonna solve the water crisis, we're not gonna solve the educational crisis or poverty, but we did learn something, that if a child has access, consistent access to one loving, caring adult, their probability to be a thriving adult went up dramatically. So that's secular research. As people of Jesus, what can we do with that? The local church should be the most relational community. Like kids should, kids should be, even if they don't know Jesus, they should be thinking, I love that place, and I want to keep being a part of this community, right? Like, who, wouldn't, who would want to walk away from that, right? Highly relational ministry loved by, read by love and care. So what's the, what's the insight here? The insight that we can take away from this is one loving, caring adult can make all the difference. So for, the, for those of you who have the position and the authority to influence your church's children's ministry, as we think about... If we can think about our jobs as instead of running a program, which I know you've, you, you do more than you run a program, but what if we thought of ourselves as community builders? My job as a kids pastor is to build a community. And as I build this community, I'm working my way through my key people, starting with the key people, helping them to realize, hey, you're, an you're a community builder and equipper, a community builder and equipper. Your job is to make sure these kids feel and know they're a part of this community and you're doing the same thing with other volunteers and you're equipping the right people to be a disciple maker, right? Like this is the kind of vision. I, in, in, a, in, a, in a majority Christian culture, we relied on so many other structures to help disciple our kids. In a post-Christian culture, it's us. The culture's not gonna help us. The church has got to be highly relational. All right, let's go. Next one, believe. Deeply scriptural ministry rooted in the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel. I realize I gotta pick up the pace. Um, this, is, this is Bible engagement. The insight here, uh, you probably saw LifeWay's research the last couple of years. If kids engage the Bible, they grow spiritually. Uh, how many of you are familiar with BSF, Bible Study Fellowships? Bible Study Fellowships has done a lot of research. You want to grow spiritually? Guess what? Read the Bible. So as we think about our kids, do our kids see us with a digital device up front while we're teaching? Which is fine, but kids might wonder, like, okay, are you really playing Tetris? Actually, kids don't wonder if you're playing Tetris. They probably don't know what Tetris is. Born in 1976, right here. So, but if you're holding a physical leather or cardboard Bible, like there's no mistaking what that is. Let them see you hold, go retro. Let them see you holding a physical book that's a Bible. Read it aloud. I know you've got cognitive development stages, but for those who can read, put it on the screen. Read the Bible together. Let them hear the words of God being spoken. Sing scripture memory. So I saw Jason Hauser from Seeds. I'm glad he's here. 
Like sing scripture memory music. Um, equip parents. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Focus on one verse at a time. Parents, read this at home. Pastor, plaster post-it notes around your home with this verse. Kids need scripture permeating their world. It needs to be taught. They need to be taught to memorize it. And it's just got to be a part of their normal environment at church and at home. You can't fully control what happens at home, but make church scripture rich. What's sad is many churches have gone to a Bible light strategy. By the way, Bible light leads to what? Moralistic therapeutic deism. If you don't know what that is, go Google moralistic therapeutic deism. It'll, it'll scare you. Kids need a Bible-rich ministry. Drop that Bible-like curriculum. Go to a Bible-rich curriculum that teaches the gospel, the threat of redemption, and that teaches kids to engage the scripture. The, second, the third factor is become truly experiential ministry designed to move kids from simulation to real-world application of faith-based living. That's a lot of words, but the resilient insight is this. A child disciple maker can help kids navigate a changing culture and lead them to experience God's presence in the world around us. This right here is experiential and it's navigational. What do we mean by that? The Bible for children and Christianity for children can seem like a historical thing. At, at the worst, it's a bunch of fables, right? Like you could perceive it that way. Or it could just seem like, like that's amazing, but that was 2,000 years ago. That's not today, right? What we have to do, what becoming is about is, hey, guys, 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 you're not going to believe what happened this week. Um, our HVAC went out, and we're, we're committed to not going into debt with credit cards. So we prayed, like, dear Jesus, what are we going to do? We have no heat, and it's cold outside. And the very next day, uh, actually, it wasn't the day. It's actually a true story. About a week later, some guy showed up on our truck, and they put in a brand-new HVAC unit in our house. Like, that actually happened in our life. But what's happening in your life that was a miracle and you saw God move? You all have those stories. Your volunteers have those stories. We have to mobilize our volunteers to tell how God is active today. So we call that giving kids eyes of faith. Becoming is helping them experience God today. God is involved. Henry Blackaby, experiencing God, right? Like, let's give kids eyes of faith to see that God is active now. It can be small. It could be that your puppy was sick. You took, you prayed you took your puppy to the vet and, and, God, and God healed your puppy, right? Like, let's, let's talk to kids about God being active now. That way, if you're a highly belonging community, and that one day when your kid says, I'm, I'm, and a kid in your youth ministry says, I think I may be gay, whatever it is, fill, fill in the blank. You are prepared to help them navigate. This is experiential. We've got to help them navigate today's world. Otherwise, the Bible is ancient. It's for the past. It's not for today. So here's what's happening. These three factors are all working together. Belong, believe, become. Christian Smith's research in Souls in Transition says when all three of these are together, guess what? You're way more likely to influence their identity and for them to be a long-term disciple. Um, guys, there was so much more I wanted to say there, and I went really fast. Let me, let me close with uh, part of my story. So really my biggest memory of my parents, all four of us under one roof, my brother, myself, my parent, my mom, my dad, the, the biggest memory I have of all four of us being under one roof is the day my dad walked out. In my mind's eye, I can still see everything pretty clearly. Uh, I'm sitting on the floor. My older brother, who is five years older than me, his head is right here. His very dark black hair is right here because he's, he's sitting next to me. He's, he's taller. And the door is right here. It's like eight, ten feet away, and it's open. For whatever reason, in the midst of this argument, my parents didn't close the door. And so the door is open. And while my dad is screaming and yelling, the emotional 
violence of this day. I can see him going back and forth. The master bedroom's here, the front door's over here. He's carrying cardboard boxes out, and I see coat hanger, like his clothes are draped over his arm, and I see this stuff through, through the frame of the door. I just see these little frames of him leave, and he's just screaming and yelling. So like, like, that's like, that's like benchmark. Like, that's the story, right? Like, the, I, I couldn't have been more than three or four years old. And so, but in that moment, what I remember is a golden spine. Remember the Disney golden books, the, the yeah. golden books? I remember, I remember my brother, I'm here, right? He's going, he's putting these books in front of me. What's he doing? He's trying to distract me. Who was, who was the hero, right? Like he was the hero. So that's like, that's like, that's like setting the scene. So fast forward um, uh, to uh, my mom marries my stepdad. Um, they met on a radio show, isn't that so funny? <laughs> this is back before there was the internet. I, that's the first time I've ever said that out loud, Sarah. You've heard me do this a dozen times, and I've never shared that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So my mom and my stepdad get married, and he was a Christian, and so they started going to church. Well, one, one night, or, or one day, um, I'm at a church, and off to the, it had to be evening, because off to the left, had, there's these long, narrow windows every five feet or so, and it's pink outside, which tells me the sun must be setting. So it's probably a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. And I'm at this church, and there's a man up front with a guitar, and he's strumming a guitar, and he's singing, Jesus loves me. And there's, I, I see his wife off to the side and one other child. One, two, three, four. And I just remember this sensation of, I want that. That is good. I don't know who this Jesus is, but I've got to know more. And that, for me, that was like, I'm assuming that's the day that I got saved. Like, that was the beginning of that journey. So for those of you who work with kids and two kids show up, you're tempted to do what, right? You're tempted to say, oh, this is going to be a horrible night. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. God might be doing something amazing. That might be part of his plan. So, so that, so again, plot, frame the plot. This happens. Fast forward to elementary ministry. My mom, my stepdad get married. So we start going to to church consistently And we laugh about flannel graph, but I grew up on flannel graph, man. That stuff was amazing. I was just dialed in on Sunday morning children's church. And I I was, you know, I was actually very poor in school in terms of grades. But on Sunday, man, I was like, I wanted to know, like, Daniel's about to move. What's going to happen next as we slide him across the flannel, you know? So it was very exciting. But I remember, I'm telling you guys, I remember something was happening. Because when I think about those memories, they're almost, they're almost magical in my mind. Like something was happening in that room, which tells me God was active. Those lessons from the Bible that were being taught, God was forming me uh, to the point where I wasn't a good kid. At, I wasn't a good student at school, but I remember elbowing the guys next to me to shut up because so, I wanted to listen to what was happening. So uh, you, again, you never know what God is doing in that room when you're teaching kids. You just don't know. You don't know. So... That's elementary school. Fast forward to the junior high or the high school years. And, you know, my parents were divorced. So it was like going to dad's house every other weekend. That was kind of the arrangement uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And so uh, my dad would live a very rough, promiscuous lifestyle. You know, he, he had he was in and out of marriages all the time. So that was kind of that was kind of another part of the scene. So my dad at one point like calls me up because he was trying to get me to do joint custody like like two weeks on, two weeks off, you know, like back and forth, back and forth. And my mom was trying to explain to me, Matt, here's the positive of that, here's the negative of that, here's why I don't think this is a wise decision knowing who your dad is. 
Her response was very calm and rational. I didn't feel like it was manipulative. It sounded very logical to me. So I kind of sided with my mom. And so I had to let my dad down. And my dad's like, I don't want to see you anymore. Like, boom, you know. So I had, I had this feeling in my heart of like, I think subconsciously I was thinking my stepdad was going to step up. And he didn't. He just didn't. And so fast forward, I'm on the phone with my girlfriend one day. I'm in the kitchen where like big opening and there's like a few feet and then the corner. So I'm like hiding around the corner and I'm on the phone and I was hiding around the corner because when I was growing up, your phone freedom was only as long as the cord. So if you had, if you had a, a, a 10 foot long cord, you had 20 feet radius of phone freedom, right? But I, we had like a 3.5 foot cord. So I had seven feet and going this way meant I was in the living room this way. I could have some privacy and I'm on the phone. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking to this girl and, and, but we also had a rule, 15 minutes, it's time to get off. He was a union guy and you live by the rules, you live by the law. And so like time to clock out, right? 15 minutes. So he yells, Matt, it's time to get off the phone. And I was so embarrassed because I knew she heard that. I knew she heard that. And be, I was a fairly compliant child, regardless of what you may think of me. I was a very compliant child. So I hung up that phone and I ran through the living room and I yelled at him sitting in his lazy boy. And I ran back to my room and I'm like on all fours crying. I'm just so humiliated. I don't know what my mom said to him, but in no time flat, he was back there in my room and he was hovered over me with his big 300 pound truck driver frame. And he was crying. He said, Matt, I'm sorry. And it was the first time in my growing up years that I ever had a man demonstrate like humility or redemption or forgiveness or anything even close to that space. And in the same time period, men were stepping up. A pastor, our pastor of our small country church, 125. Again, if you're, if you're from a small church, don't despise those, those humble realities. God, God's doing stuff. And so my pastor started taking me out to the park. Bring your Bible, come to the park. We'd meet up. He was teaching me Timothy. He was teaching me the Gospels. Um, there was a deacon who said, hey, come by the house. And I would stop by his house and he would talk to me. And I remember him imparting uh, proverbs, like certain verses he wanted me to, to take with him, to take with me. Youth pastor was a great dynamic teacher, but he was also, he would also say like, hey, I want you to help me out with this. I want you to help me with youth group. I want you to play the guitar. I didn't know what I was doing. It was so horrible, but he was giving me experience, right? And so then there was a, the pastor's wife wrote me cards, handwritten, like in Baptist churches where you got the card in the back of the pew and you write the little card. Uh, maybe we don't have any Baptists in the room. I have no idea. Anyway, so uh, she, where I thought my name was divorce, child support, and custody, she told me my name was mercy, encouragement, and leadership. She gave me new names where my eyes started picking up and looking out on the horizon rather than at my current circumstances. So what's happening here? What's happening here? What's happening is these same three factors working together. Highly relational community highly relational. Why would I want to leave that? Why would I want to walk away from a place that says, you're going to hit bumps in the road. You're going to make stupid decisions. You're going to sin. You're going to mess up. But like that prodigal, the prodigal's father who runs to you, this is the church. The church is God's agency of grace and equipping. We love you. We care about you. And we're going to point you to Jesus, right? It might be hard. It might have to discipline you, but we're doing it because we love you. We care about you. This highly relational community that taught me the Bible, taught me the word, and pointed me to intimacy with Jesus. Like, that's the goal, right? And they gave me experience. They let me screw up. They let me, they, I should, sorry, I said that. 
They let me mess up. Like I, you know, they, they just gave me opportunity. But these three factors were working together to produce a spiritual resilience that can bend and flex but not break under the weight of culture. We're no longer here in a majority Christian culture. We're here in this post-Christian reality. So here's the question I would like to end on. In a world of seemingly endless children's ministry options, which ways are most fruitful? The church of today in our highly secularized culture has got to wrestle with this question. Think about that slide that had all the methodologies on it. We're overwhelmed with too much opportunity. We've got to have harder questions about what's going to produce spiritual resiliency, lasting faith in our post-Christian world. That's a question worth pursuing with your church team. Well, there you have it. That was Matt Markins from Awana at the track session from the National Disciple Making Forum of last year. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. I'll be dropping another one here in the next couple of days. So make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast so that you see whenever I upload a new episode each week. If you haven't already, make sure you check out the discipleship.org slash collective. Sign up for your free membership today. And as always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>